1: We are here as part of um, uh, our McDonald's lecture series and um, this time it's a little bit different because we are here to discuss a lecture which I've given myself (laughs) um, uh, on the Reformation, past, present and future. So I've uh, just given a lecture on the Reformation and we're going to uh, discuss that. And um, uh, Sean, Sean Doherty is um, hosting Olly Slim saying a key part of it and uh, we've also got Rennie Choi who's a, a church historian and tutor in church history here at St Melitus we also have Michael Layden as well hello tutor in uh, Christian doctrine at St Melitus based in the northwest so Sean take it away
2: thank you very much so uh, uh Graham one of your uh, comments in the lecture was about uh conscience and the sort of maybe the ambivalent impact which that has had and sort of Luther's supposed emphasis on uh, the individual conscience and you're kind of questioning Mm -hmm. whether he was as individualistic as Mm -hmm. it's maybe popularly supposed. I thought one thing to maybe um, chat through a bit more therefore was what are the are there any um, are there any good is there a sort of a good positive role for um, for, for the individual conscience, is there sort of a, are there, is it healthy sometimes to sort of say, here I stand, I can do no other. I know Luther probably didn't use those actual words, but uh, you know, this is this is what I really think God is saying to me, and I'm going to have to stick to my guns. Uh, or is that simply a sort of an arrogant refusal to listen to the opinions of, of others? That can be yeah, a fine sure. line, yeah. I suppose.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's right. He does clearly say in, the, in his response to the Diet of Worms, "You know, um, uh, this is what my conscience tells me, and it's not safe to go against conscience." Uh, and so he, he, he has got a place for individual conscience. He's saying, "Actually, you, know, you don't want to go if your conscience is telling you something. You don't want to go against it." But it seems to me that, that it's a bit like what he says about faith, because of course the point is what he's saying about faith: is that the crucial thing is not it's not the faith that saves you; it's what the faith is in. So faith is, if you like, the thing that connects you to the, to the object, which is Christ. And it's a little bit the same with, with conscience. Faith is important to Luther, not because faith has some psychic power that somehow saves. It's because faith is the thing that receives the gift of Christ. Now conscience, it seems to me, is, plays a similar kind of role. The focus is not on the conscience. It's on what the conscience is in. And so he is saying, yes, I really believe this. But the question is not the power of the belief. It's the, it's the, it's the, the objectivity what he believes in. And he's saying that actually if um, that actually his, his, his standpoint is uh, what he's saying in, in, in forms, I have thought deeply about these things. This is what I'm convinced about, that in the uh, word which is given to me in Christ, I've got something objective, something I can hold on to. That is, that is come, come to me. And I, I don't want to give that up because it's not safe to go against conscience. You mean it's a, it's a, and it's a point I think he's making more generally to kind of, you know, in a sense, saying to the whole crowd, look, you all know this, don't you? I mean, it's not safe to go against conscience. It's almost a, an appeal like that. So I'm saying it's a little bit of an afterthought. Uh, it's an important point to make, but this focus is not upon the power of the conscience. It's actually upon the object uh, in which the conscience is placed.
3: I think that's a really helpful and interesting point there because what that does is it, it means that actually what he's really saying is it's not safe to go against God. Yeah. And so it's not yeah. just that he's about self-actualization and realization and, um, you know, I have to be true to myself. Yeah. It's, I have exactly. to be true to what I think God has said. That's right, yes. But, but I also think yeah. what that does is it, it ought to make um, disagreement possible mm. and meaningful and generous mm. because, um, because God objectively is making himself known in Scripture, and what mm. this is about is how one reads mm. Scripture and understands the the gift of Christ mm. witnessed in Scripture. Mm. Um, that ought to be, a, in a sense, an invitation to, look, we can, we can dis- discuss this together. and it, yeah. Almost that's what the first half of the, the, yeah. the 1522 speech is modelling. If you can show me from Scripture yeah. that I'm wrong, mm. I'll take it. Yeah. Because this isn't about me, and it's not mm. about you. It yeah. is about God. Yeah. And that, that's quite fundamental to good disagreement yeah. as well as to... to to agreement.
1: I think that's right and it is quite striking how Luther is always, always inviting a conversation in Worms. He's saying to, his, to, to the emperor and everybody else, please come on sh- show me if I've got this wrong. I really want to know because I don't want to be trusting in something which is wrong. I don't want to place my conscience in something which is actually faulty. If I've got this wrong and I haven't really understood this right, I, I, I would genuinely want to know. I think he's, he's, he's genuinely saying that. Now you can kind of understand why the Catholic theologians didn't want to argue him, they didn't want to go into a Bible study with Luther because that would be conceding the point that Luther's opinion is just as valid as the Pope's. Um, whereas in some ways their point was well hang on a minute the church has said this and who are you a little tiny German monk in your little tiny university in Wittenberg who are you to speak against the, the councils the Pope and the great tradition of, uh, of the church. And so they, they, that's why they won't enter into that debate but that was deeply frustrating for Luther. Because I think he genuinely did want that conversation, that kind of ability to look at um, uh, at what he was saying and, and what he felt scripture was saying in a, in a, in a quite profound way.
2: When you're a church historian. What's, what was the impact of, uh, of, of that idea?
0: Yeah, I really liked your question um, about whether there's something positive that we can say about... Um, this uh, question of conscience hmm. um, because I think that the picture you painted um, is, is, well, very um, moving um, for you know, Luther's immediate circle and his theological concepts. Um, but the historian in me wants to reckon with the, um, the impact which uh, this, this kind of... Um, exploration of faith had on a kind of world historical level. And that is to say um, a lot of contemporary historians view this whole episode, the subjective turn, um, as a positive thing um, because it has encouraged um, people to emphasize kind of the the psychological um, truthfulness of our faith. So the fact that um, faith... We, ha- we have to wrestle with it. Um, you know, to what extent do we believe it? Um, there's a level of psychological honesty that is an agre- ingredient for um, what's considered progressive societies, um, tolerant societies. Um, yeah, so you know, for, for modern, modern day, contemporary, liberal societies, it is a good thing uh, to wrestle with um, yeah. the psychological anxiety that we have between faith and doubt. True. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that, that is right. And I think, um, and there are some good and there are not so good things about that. I mean, there are, in the sense that, that um, I mean, you use the word honesty, which is a very, very good word, and it's a very powerful word, I think, for, for Luther's early struggles. Because what you sense in Luther's early um, wrestlings over this is there is a deep honesty with what he's trying to do. He's not trying to kind of make a point. He's not trying to kind of argue a theological position. It's, it's really, genuinely, a, 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 you know, where can I find solid ground? Where can I find something that I can rest upon where I'm not thrown one way or the other? Uh, something that gives me a sense of security and, um, uh, and a sense of, and, and it is that sort of search for security, which, is, which was very characteristic of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually think individualism was something that, was, that had started well before the Reformation, uh, we often think of the Reformation or Luther as the kind of originator of modern individualism. I think it goes a long way before that, to the, to the early stages of the Renaissance and others, which had broken up a lot of the you know, structures of medieval life. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, Rennie. Um, but um, uh, which actually led to a kind of very anxious age. Uh, and uh, we know quite a lot about that in our world. We're a very anxious age. You know, we also worry about, uh, we don't worry about the judgment of God, but we do worry about the judgment of other people. You know, what do other people think of us? Uh, we want to prove ourselves before the bar of other people's opinion. We want to exp- show ourselves to be you know, good, rational, nice, kind people that people will like, and just as medieval people wanted to do that before God. And so th- there's that commonality about an- anxiety and the need for honesty in it. But I think Luther's point would be, uh, I find security not in the quality of my own honesty. Um, I'm really, really honest. Uh, therefore, I can be sure about myself, but it's in the very thing he trusts in, which is the objective gift of Christ given
2: him. In your lecture, you made the comment, and um, people often say today, um, "I wish I had your your faith." And uh, sometimes we find it hard to know how to respond to that because it's as if faith is this purely inward psychological thing that you can you you either have it or you don't have it, and maybe you could work really hard and you know screw it up. and pick it up and, and, yep. and, and force yourself up to a slightly higher level of it. But, you, you know, where, whereas, um, for we, so we, in other words, we tend to conflate faith and certainty. Yep. Whereas it seems to me that in Luther, we have somebody who models um, a very high level of faith, but also with quite, um, quite a level of doubt and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he wrestled um, in an ongoing way with uncertainty about his own salvation, um, uh, whether, whether you know, he would really be good enough for God and all of those kinds of things, at the same time as trusting in Christ, uh, uh, that, that Christ would, would save him, I found that very pastorally helpful to say to people, look, being a Christian doesn't mean that you no longer have any questions or doubts, um, but bring those doubts to the Christ who you trust in uh, to, to, to save you.
0: But I think on this exact point is what a lot of um, contemporary historians would say is the the sociological gift of Luther to um, historical development, that he opened up the way for liberty of what you use the word conscience, um, liberty of um, self-analysis, which does honestly um, open up the um, possibilities of disagreement and um, rupture, schism, in a way that... Medieval Christendom didn't yep, allow, yep. and so um, I know you had a, a really strong point about um, the Reformation as a turn towards the church. But um, yeah. historians would tend to say that this was, um, you know, to to um, to to say that um, it was a turn. Um, away from Western Christendom is a positive development because yeah. it allowed for yeah. um, sure. various, yeah. uh, well, the diversity of uh, confessional, mm. confessions mm. and um, spiritualities, um, approaches to God in a way that Western Christendom previous to the sure. Reformation yeah. did not yeah. Yeah. allow.
1: Yeah, I guess that, that's right. But in some ways, that seems to be a slightly kind of after the event mm-hmm. argumentation. And yes. we've now got this plurality. Mm-hmm. Isn't that quite a nice thing? Because we don't really like Christianity anyway, because it's divisive but before the division it didn't kind of feel that way and I which is why I think I was trying to make the point in the lecture that actually it's not so much you know the, the, the development of hyperpluralism, the development of individualism and subjectivism within the modern world which I actually think is quite um, anxiety producing uh, it's not actually Luther's fault but it is the fault of of the reformation in the sense that it led to a schism which led to a kind of varieties of different versions and interpretations and therefore led to pluralism. And so I suppose part of my argument is actually that schism is never a good idea. Um, It tends to lead to harmful effects and it has led to harmful effects. Now, you don't blame the Reformation and Luther's ideas because I do actually think um, that it could have been quite possible for the Reformation ideas to be held somehow within the Catholic Church at the time. The Catholic Church was not as monolithic Mm -hmm as we think it was. It wasn't everyone all agreeing with each other. It wasn't everyone having exactly the same theology. There a wide variety of theological positions within the Catholic Church. Uh, and the tragedy is that that wasn't able to be held within the Catholic Church within that same Christendom. And if it had been, maybe we still would have been living in a much more kind of deeply Christian continent.
3: I wonder if, if that is true of a first-generation reformer like Luther, but maybe not so true of the second yeah. generation. And, and, and particularly on this question of faith, um, because I think at one point you said something like, from memory, um, you know the, the issue isn't you know, I've got faith and you haven't, it's that we've all got faith, but I, I'm putting mine in Jesus. But of course, something like John Calvin would put, probably put a massive question mark over that and say, well actually, faith is itself a gift of God. And that, that's something like Romans 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. It, it isn't something that, that is sort of innate or axiomatic to us, but, but is itself a work of God in us. It's a work of the Spirit. So even within what we're calling the Reformation, the Reformers have, have different ways of engaging with this notion of faith. And Calvin wants to do it because he wants to say, actually, ultimately, there are ways of reading Luther that say, you save yourself by making the right choice. Calvin wants to say, no, no, it's never down to your choice, because yeah. if it is, it's just another work. Mm-hmm. It's just that your work is the work of believing. Yeah. Yeah. And so that there is something about even, even foregrounding faith, which is not straightforward, it's not easy, mm-hmm. um, because the reformers spend the next 50 years arguing about it. Yeah. And, and we, yeah. we're still doing that to an extent now.
1: Which is an interesting question. I mean, When Calvin says that about faith being a gift of God, and Luther also, also yeah. believes faith is a gift of God, do you think he means that um it's faith is the gift of god or faith in christ is the gift of god because i guess i've always read calvin as saying it's faith in christ is something you can only have if god gives you that gift uh, it's possible to put your faith in other things because faith is a kind of in some ways we all trust something um but it's the it's, it's the faith in christ the ability to, to to believe in christ is something that can only come by the holy spirit
2: um this, yeah. this is why, for, just jump in there on a maybe a slight tangent. This is why for Luther, um, fulfilling the first commandment to love the Lord yeah, your God yeah. with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, for him isn't different to the invitation to trusting in Christ, to, to trust rather than so so ob- obedience and faith aren't completely diametrically opposed for Luther because he says yeah. faith is the way by which you fulfill the first commandment in other words instead of being an idolater instead of trusting in something else you trust in god you love god you devote yourself to god and therefore you are obeying uh, uh, obeying him so it's almost as if it's not quite it's faith a work maybe not quite but it's it, and it's still a gift as well but it's um, it, it, is what, it is what we do it is it is a human thing
1: but it's not what we contribute to our salvation because it's a kind of passive thing, it's a receptive thing rather than an active thing that we give. That seems to be one of the, again, the other mistakes people make about faith is that somehow faith is a thing that we do which somehow earns salvation. So God looks at us, oh, you've got faith, oh good, that's good, I'll give you salvation. As if, you know, faith is this substantial thing that we have which we offer and in return God gives us salvation in a kind of deal or contract. It doesn't seem to me that's the way Luther thinks about faith at all.
3: No, I, I, I think I agree with that with Luther's concern. I think some of the later Reformed theologians um, are struggling, yeah. though, to yeah. articulate in a sense what Sean's just said, which is it's both a gift and something we do.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, and it's something we do because, we, as you say, we put our faith in things. We're invited to trust. We're invited to, well, are we invited or told? I suppose we're told, aren't we? <laughs> um, we're commanded and commanded to obey. Um, and at the same time, we want to say, but that isn't something we do in our own strength. It's, it's the work of the Spirit in us. Yeah. And we want to say both of those things because, as Luther indicates, mm-hmm. we want to read Scripture. And as we read Scripture, you see both of those things in, in the Pauline yeah. corpus. Yeah. And, of course, Calvin develops that into a sort of uh, a doctrine of election, yeah. that those who have faith are those whom God has already predetermined, predestined, mm-hmm. elect for salvation. Yeah. And that, that is exactly to preserve the sovereignty of God, mm-hmm. exactly to say, look, if, if we say that faith is something we do, we're in, we're in danger of saying that yeah. we save ourselves. Yeah. God, God's given us the thing we have to yeah. choose, but it only takes effect if we do something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, you, how you, you parse that dynamic between divine sovereignty and human agency yeah. Yeah. is hugely problematic. And, and later reformers use the language of acknowledgement. Faith is about acknowledging the work of Christ. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's, if you like, it's the affirmation, yes,
1: yeah. that, that him... Yeah. But it's no more than a yes, a simple affirmation. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point about the predestination thing, because I, I guess if I'm trying to sort of push this, this argument that the Reformation wasn't inevitable in the sense that many of the Reformation positions, you can find echoes of them in the medieval church. You know, we think of Calvin's double predestination as a very hard um, kind of uh, pre- doctrine of predestination. You can find echoes of that in the Augustinian, well Augustine himself, in the Augustinian tradition of Gregory of Rimini, Thomas Bradwardine, you know, even someone like Zwingli's view of the sacraments, where the bread and the wine are merely a a kind of picture. They're they're, they're not in any sense the presence of Christ. You can find that in Berengar of Tours. You can find it in Radbertus. And again, they were controversial, you know, and there were debates over it, but they didn't lead to a reformation in the same way. Um, You know, you you can see radical breaks from the Catholic, uh, you know, Tradition of monasticism, for example, in, Fra- in the St. Francis and St. Dominic, but they didn't lead to a, a schism either. And so there, there was a kind of series of reform movements within the, Medi- the medieval church. And the Reformation could have been a reform movement within the Catholic Church if it had been handled better.
0: And uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, go. On. Yeah. But that, I think that's why some historians have put it in very strong language that Luther's um, innovation, the oh. novelty, was. Um, you can you can couch it in theological language, but in sociological terms, um, what he did was take the authority away from the church, and that's you know what could be understood as a subjective turn. He took it away from the church into um, his own interpretation, his own right to assert uh, what he believed to be true, um, and and so kind of on a societal, um, historical, world historical impact. Uh, what that led to then, obviously, was um, you know uh, um, the, the fracturing of um, yeah of, of Christendom, in a way, um, so that the, the the locus of spiritual authority um, is is clearly not in uh, the one church anymore, but is in this kind of um, abstract uh, organic notion of uh, an invisible well, church.
2: Um, yeah, and and that any one member of the of that church can correct exactly. another exactly. member. Right. So there's a hilarious yes, um, exactly. uh, preface that Luther writes. He sends one of his books to the Pope and he li- puts a little letter at the front saying, um, Dear Leo, dear Pope, um, uh, far be it from me to try and correct mm. such an illustrious mm. figure as you are. But the problem is, I know that you're surrounded by all of these people in your hierarchy and they're really kind of corrupt and venal and they need and they're preventing you from finding out the, the truth so you know as a sort of to help you out hey I'm gonna send you this kind of book of, of good theology and so it's not even even if the theology that he had written in that book was more um, you know, acceptable by, by the, the standards of the day, the fact that he presumed to write to the Pope in those yes, terms exactly. um, yeah. is, a, is a, bold, a bold move, a And what you have kind of an
0: obje- a objective turn to the church. Well, there, there's kind of questions about where you think the church is, Catholic. Um, for Luther, or, or, well, second generation of reformers no longer means Catholic. It, it ha- takes on a different meaning, uh, which is, is the innovation here, historically.
3: I, I, th- I think I, I gently want to, p- to push back against my uh, very esteemed colleagues it's, it's. in the sense that I, I don't think it is this sort of absolute uh, self-projecting um, authority. He, he, is, he is doing two things, really, that are, I think are really significant. He's engaged in, in a kind of theological method that involves extended commentary on scripture. So Luther writes, shed loads of commentaries, and that's, that's important because, because this, is, this is theological work is theologizing and, and by, preaching and preaching by commentating oh. on scripture so so it isn't an absolute subjectivism it isn't the kind of a right to assert himself against the pope it's a right to draw the pope's attention to what scripture says as opposed to the teachings of the church and the other thing is is about the, the sacraments that the question of where is the church well the church is the place where the scriptures are read and the sacraments are, are celebrated now i know that's a, a slightly later reformation mantra but even so it's 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 almost gifted to the second generation from, from Luther. And I think also
1: Luther's, what Luther was saying was actually the, the significance of the theologian within the church. He always made a big play of the fact that he was a doctor of theology. And the okay. doctor of theology, the point of a doctor is it, a doctor looks after the health of something. And the doctor of theology, if you've got a doctorate, your job is to be a doctor of the church, to look after the health of the church. You have a role a responsibility to do that. You know it's not just an academic post to give you a job you're actually a doctor looking after the health of the church so he felt his calling and he would often say you know i'm a doctor I, I, I have a doctorate that's my job my job is to look after the theological health of the church and so i think he's saying something not just about his own personal opinion it's about the role of the theologian within the church uh, to actually begin to ask questions and say have we got this right and are we on the right lines here and uh, and i think the problem came when you got the response from the papal theologians, which wasn't able to, wasn't willing to engage in that debate, and then you also have to blame Luther for getting angry and being rude to everybody and calling the Pope Antichrist and everything else. That didn't really help. Um, and also so.
0: believing that the sacraments could actually be, op- be administered outside of then, you know, the, the, the history of apostolic succession and the bishops and, the, you know, ordained hands of the priests. So he's able to take, to pick up on your idea about, you know, um, the, the importance of the sacraments for Luther, um, there's still, I would say, a, a bit of assertion there that he's able to see, to imagine sacraments um, mm. being administered mm. effectively I, outside of the Catholic I, Church. I don't
3: think it's the issue of him asserting things that, that, mm. that I'm sort of questioning. It's, it's the, the basis on which he makes the assertion. And I think it isn't a kind of subjective, here am I, Martin Luther, telling the Pope what to think. It's, here am I, Martin Luther, reading the scriptures. And drawing the attention of, of the Holy Father to the scriptures and actually saying, um, I don't think we got this right. And that, that business of being a doctor of the church, which I, I didn't know, to, I'm grateful to know it. it there's something about the now work. Now you know what your job is. Yeah, now I know what I'm here <laughs> for. You're going to have to stop paying me. Um, there, is, there is something about the work of, of the church in every generation, which is to critically reflect on oh. its, own, its, its own proclamation, its own work. In the light of the gospel, not to assume yeah. that we've been doing this forever so we know what we're doing,
2: yeah. Yeah. but to ask I, those sorts of critical I, questions. I think that's why i i suppose I'm—I'm I'm yet to be fully convinced by your thesis, Graham, that that, that schism could have been avoided. Um, uh, part, part, uh, well, because of it seems to me what, that it, the debate about authority really is the fundamental one, not the debate about justification so there were the different uh, views of justification at stake but the, the re- but the real question behind them both uh, the 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 they were the proxy uh, but but behind them both really was um how is the church to discern what god, what god says and what is true um is it by um, you know, patient engagement with scripture, or you know, and and, to, and what do you do? And particularly, this is not as if the medieval Catholicism was uninterested in scripture. Of course, but what do you do when what you think the scripture says and what the teaching of the church, the official line of the church, um, when they conflict with, with one another?
0: Right, and, and so your your final um, remarks about Europe and this nation needing a u- united um, church. Um, in a way, I feel like. Well, I wonder whether um, that model is r- relevant or even desirable. Um, I'm not questioning, the, obviously, the value of, um, of unity, but, uh, but perhaps this model of you know, one um, authoritative body that can make uh, declarations um, and through which um, the sacraments and only through which the sacraments are faithful, faithfully and effectively administered. Um, it, it, that, that's something that um, we, we may you know, um, question, whether that's I mean, of relevance yeah. um, today.
1: I mean, just to respond to those two points, um, uh, Sean's points about authority. Yes, um, I, I take the point that there was a real debate over authority here, but you'd had a similar debate over authority a couple of hundred years before in the conciliar movement. Mm. There'd been this big debate over, you know, who, what has the final authority in the church? Is it the papacy or is it the council? Um, they'd had a big, big, big argument about authority. It went to the absolute heart of what, you know, what the church, how the church handles authority. Now, that didn't lead to schism. It actually was worked out patiently over time, and it led to a particular position. Now, one could argue that the position it ended up with paved the way for the Reformation, because it ended up with quite a strong doctrine of papal um, authority in it. But, you know, you had a debate over authority, which didn't necessarily lead to um, to, to, to schism. Um, I think, on, on Rennie's point, I think that's right I think what I say when I say you know Europe needs a united church I don't necessarily mean um, you know return to Christendom or return to a great magisterium of the papacy telling everybody what to do um, uh, whatever it is but it, it, it needs a church that is more conscious of what we have in common than what we do- divides us um, and yes there are things that divide us there are still arguments that we have there are things, debates that we have within our churches and we will continue to have those debates whenever you know, as we were within the medieval church. Um, but it seems to me, over the past couple, few hundred years, we've been more conscious of what divides us than we have with what unites us. And actually, it's that kind of church we, we need a common witness across the different Christian churches. And because that, because otherwise, you get the same pattern of a world that looks at the church, and they can't agree amongst themselves, why, why should we bother listening to them anyway? So,
0: yeah. yeah. And I think the value of that perspective is... Um, it, it, that it um, helps us um, guard against the danger of um, rising nationalism, which has been attached to one of the historical impacts yeah. of the Reformation because of you know, the split into various confessions, and that you know, led, um, in some historical interpretations, to the rise of nationalism. Yeah. And so I think your argument is, is a very strong one um, because it does help to guard against this yeah. tendency um, to equate Protestant Reformation with various um, mm. strong national identities yeah. in, within about,
1: Europe. One thing about medieval Europe it was held together not by a common passport but by a common baptism. Yeah, exactly. doesn't matter what nation you were from, what language you spoke to, you had this common thing that was baptism that held you together. Mm-hmm. Um, once that was in a sense lost as the kind of core identity of who people were, you got this breakup into nationality, ethnicity, mm-hmm. the language and so on.
2: Yep. So, um, we're grateful as the staff at St Melitus that Bishop Graham tolerates this big tent diversity of views <laughs> amongst his own uh, team as we've been able to express and uh, chew over his, his uh, lecture this evening.
0: godpod a podcast from st paul's theological center if you want to send us a question just email it to godpod at htb.org. we can't promise to answer all the questions you send in but we'll certainly try